At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed. Have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters 5 through 7 to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. This morning we are joyful people. You say that in your presence there is the fullness of joy. Lord, um, even today we acknowledge um, that because of the busyness of our lives, because of the chaos all around us, at times, Lord, we are like children who refuse to sit in the lap of their father. But today we rest in your presence. Today, we have gathered in this place so that we might be reminded of your promises and be reminded once again that you are king forever, that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, that you promised that you would never leave us or forsake us, Lord, that you know your plans concerning us, plans for good, a hope, and a future. And so, Lord, may the voice of our King be louder than the voice of a thousand distractions. May the voice of our King be louder than the noise of our culture. May your voice be louder than our doubts and our fears today, Lord. And Lord, may we hear from you so clearly that we will leave this place being able to say, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Lord, I pray not just for us, but I pray for the generations that are in this building today, for our children, the Lord, to get a glimpse of your glory that will mark them for the rest of their lives. I pray that today, the Lord, we will emerge from this place recognizing, the Lord, that we have been called from sin to Christ so that we might declare forth your praises and my generation where hope and salvation, grace and redemption can be found. And so, Lord, it is your breath in our lungs. And so we pour out praise to you only. And it's in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus we pray. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Come on and give God praise. Come on. Amen, amen, amen. Can, can you do me a favor? Uh, they're gone now. Thought they were behind me. Give a big hand for our worship team. Amen. You know, um, you guys are awesome. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Thanks to the whole team. Appreciate you guys so much. I know that we are in a season where so many have been serving faithfully, and it's easy to get weary. It's easy to get tired. But I hear the Lord uh, and uh, his word reminding us, let us not become weary in our well-doing. Because how many know that in due season, in due season, we will reap a harvest if we faint not. And the harvest is the promise of his presence. So praise God again for our worship team who has served us so faithfully. Amen? Amen. 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 It is uh, so good to be with you all today. Anytime I get a chance to be with my Detroit family, it is always a huge blessing. I bring you greetings from Troy. 
Uh, I've been on the missions trip there for the last three years, and it's been awesome. It's been awesome. Uh, but it's great to be able to come home every now and again and uh, just be able to celebrate uh, how God is moving in the midst of his people here. I heard last week's baptism was incredible. And uh, hey, I just want to give a big shout out to the Porter family. I am so excited for you guys. And so Andy and Jim, we love you guys. Let me thank God for the Porter family. Amen. Uh, to all of those, to all of those being who, who have been baptized uh, recently, uh, congratulations. Congratulations on declaring to the world your salvation. Uh, that is to be celebrated, and we celebrate it here. Maybe in the world it's scorned, but among your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is celebrated. So I celebrate. And, uh, and for those of you who have been contemplating whether or not baptism is for me, let me just tell you that uh, Jesus says something that I think should mark us all. He says, for those who declare him before the world, he will declare before his Father who is in heaven. He also says, those who deny me before men, that he denies before his Father who is in heaven. Um, how many want Jesus to be able to brag on you before the Father? How many desire that? For Jesus to be able to say before the Father that he or she is mine. And one of the ways that um, we evidence that is through baptism. So I just want to encourage you, if you have not done so, please make sure you sign up for that. Well, today is a day where we celebrate freedom. And we're going to talk about that freedom that we have in Christ as we continue on in our series in the book of Romans. It's been an amazing series. Romans is one of those books that has been called by some the purest and clearest presentation of the gospel ever recorded in human history. I think that that is true. It can be argued that Paul pins this thesis on our justification, and that is his main subject. How is a person justified? What Paul is very clear about is uh, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He knew that empirically. Listen, there are a lot of points of theology that can be debated, but the imperfection and the sinfulness of humanity is something that I think we all agree on. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you know that humanity is pretty messed up. How many have come to notice that? How many have noticed that, right? And so Paul's issue is not whether or not we are sinners. His question is, how in the world can a sinner be justified before a holy God? Now, here's the problem with humanity. Here's the problem. The biggest problem we got to deal with is the goodness of God. And here's the thing about the goodness of God, that if he is good, he cannot overlook sin. If he is good, he can't overlook sin. There's no judge that we would ever call good who had the evidence that a criminal had committed the crime and just decided, well, I'm just going to pass on it, right? If that was you who were violated, you would in no way say that judge is good who sees the evidence, has the person red-handed and said, well, I'm just going to pass on it. Well, God is not unjust that he would not execute justice. How many want to see justice? How many desire for that? We've been called the justice generation, and many people desire that. And that's not a bad desire if understood through the lens of the cross of Christ. Because where ultimate justice is seen and experienced is through the cross of Christ. And that is what Paul concludes. My justification, your justification, comes through the finished work of Christ 
on the cross and that alone. Not that and, not the cross and my good works, not the cross and my efforts, not the cross and anything else. It is Christ alone that justifies. Amen? So we're going to celebrate that freedom. Uh, but before I get into the text today, we're in a very special season, this 30-day season as a nation that we are celebrating and uh, appreciate a particular group of people. I got a, uh, a trivia question for you guys. No prize at the end of this. I just want to see who knows the answer. How many know what's significant about September 15th to September, uh, to, to October 15th? September 15th to October 15th. Anybody know what's significant about that? There you go. Hispanic Heritage Month. There you go. Um, and it's a significant time where our nation has set aside... Uh, a season where we celebrate our brothers and sisters of Latino heritage. And in particular within the church, we should celebrate the beauty of diversity because it testifies to the manifold wisdom of our God. That our God who created all people across all spaces, times, generations, and cultures is uh, sovereign enough to use all of us for his glory. Like a symphony conductor, he's able to use all of us to bring sight, sounds, wisdom, and revelation to the world on his, half, on his behalf as we reflect his glory. Now, you may be asking, why would it be from October 15th to, I'm sorry, September 15th to October 15th, right? Well, the answer is because of the significance of September 16th. Anybody know what the uh, significance of September 16th is? Anybody know? The, say again. Mexican Independence Day. That is exactly right. You guys have been Googling well. So proud of you. How quickly you can pull out your cell phones. But no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Yeah, Mexican Independence Day, 1810. Uh, contrary to popular belief, it was, it's not Cinco de Mayo. That celebrates something that happened a half a century later as Mexico held off the encroachment of France. But uh, September 16th, 1810, in Dolores, Mexico, Father Miguel Castillo stands up and he delivers this speech that mobilizes people to uh, help to lead uh, Mexico into independence and liberation from Spain. And it's because of that liberation and that celebration that around the world, really, uh, those of Hispanic heritage are celebrated during this period of time. And here in the U.S., we celebrate it. And the celebration is a celebration of contribution to culture broadly, the sciences and arts and education. But within the church, we celebrate how God has moved among the diverse peoples of the world in history, reflecting his glory and testifying to the grace of salvation. Well, Pastor Chris, why do you bring this up? It's because we know within our hearts that freedom should be celebrated. We know within our hearts that freedom should be celebrated. That is why here in the U.S. we make such a big deal out of the 4th of July. There are fireworks across the country. There are celebrations. There are cookouts. And why? It's because of freedom. We celebrate freedom. And anytime you're celebrating national freedom, you have to always keep in mind those who paid the ultimate price for that. My wife and I were talking yesterday about the fact that there, were, there have been so many who have served in both of our families 
uh, and have this long history of serving this nation. And we praise God for it. And we, we celebrate that. And for some of you, you can even think of people in your own families, again, who paid that ultimate price. Well, all of that, to me, I think God uses to remind us of what Christ has done for us. Today, we celebrate freedom, but it's a different type of freedom. How many know that whom the Son of Man has set free is free indeed? How many celebrate your spiritual freedom? How many thank God for the one who paid the ultimate sacrifice so that you might live. How many thank God today for what Christ did on that cross so that you and I can experience new life and a freedom from sin to be made alive in Jesus? How many praise God for that? Amen? Now, what Paul wants us to know, though, is that though you are free, Sin is a power that is always seeking to master you. Sin is always trying to invite you back into a relationship again. And so let's look at this today as we go back to Romans chapter 6. We're going to start in verse number 8. And we're going to see that sin is a power that wants to master you. And, and we're going to see how Paul helps us to navigate not being mastered by the power of sin. Now, Romans chapter 6, verse number 8, Paul starts this way. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is an amazing text of scripture on a number of different levels. Paul is once again reminding us of what he had already said. If you look at the first seven verses, you would have to walk away with the conclusion that what Paul is doing here is being redundant. But he's not being redundant because of forgetfulness or senility. He is being redundant for emphatic purposes. Those who have taught or those who instruct or have led lectures understand that most people don't get your point the first time. And Paul, being a master teacher, wants to drive home again that when Christ died, you died with him. And when he rose, you rose with him. The symbolism of baptism is to capture all of that in one act, in one moment, buried with him in baptism, to rise to the newness of life. This is what Paul wants us to get. And so at the risk of being repetitive, he says, listen again. He died on that cross, and when he died, you died as well. Died to what? Died to sin. You died to sin, and now you are free. The key word here, that I want you to see here is the word dominion in verse number nine. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a moment, but I want you to hear the words of R.H. Mounds. He wrote a commentary on this, uh, on the book of Romans, and he says, the reader will notice how often Paul repeated himself in this section. As a good teacher, he knew that truth once stated is not necessarily absorbed. Paul stressed certain truths basic to an understanding 
of what it means to be united with Christ and living the new life of the Spirit. So in verse number 8, he again stated the basic proposition that those who have died with Christ will also live with him. Those of us who have trusted in his sacrificial death on the cross experience new life. We experience freedom. But something is interesting about those who have been in, in bondage, kept as a hostage. Psychologists have have identified something called Stockholm Syndrome. Have you ever heard of that before? Stockholm Syndrome is this um, psychological connection that sometimes a hostage makes with their captor. Where something happens in order to survive, the psychologists call this uh, a coping mechanism or survival mechanism that a captive will develop an affinity for the person who has brought them into bondage so much so that even when they're offered freedom, they won't go free. And many of us have developed spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. One of the classic examples of this from U.S. history comes from the life of a lady named Patty Hearst. Now, some of you may be too young to know this name, but she was the heiress to William Randolph Hearst's uh, fortune. He inherited from his father, George Hearst. They were journalists and newspaper people. They uh, had uh, published more newspapers that had been circulated more broadly than any other group ever. And so here she is, the heiress to millions upon millions of dollars. But in 1974, around February of 1974, there was a group inside of the U.S. that wanted to overthrow the U.S. government. So they decided they were going to kidnap her and hold her for ransom. Their goal was just to get money from the family that would finance their coup. And so they kidnapped her and they held her in host uh, or uh, as a hostage rather until around September the next year, 1975. But what's interesting about this is that even after the ransom had been paid and Patty Hearst could go free, she decided to stay with the same people who had captured her. Same people that had brought her into bondage. And one of the iconic photos of Patty Hearst that uh, went viral during that day, if that was a thing, but was published broadly, was her holding an assault weapon inside of a California bank, working with the same people who had taken her captive, trying to rob the bank to help to finance their mission. You may ask, what type of sense does that make? It's Stockholm Syndrome. It's something that happens to a captive, that somehow they become convinced that this captivity is good for me. Paul wants us to understand something, so he uses a political term here. He says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That death no longer has dominion over him. He has conquered death. Now, why is this significant for you and me? Because we are buried in him. And because he died, death no longer reigns over us. Man, I want to say that again because I don't know if everybody got it. Death no longer reigns, so that means that you are now free. You're free. 
You're free. Praise God. I'm free. I'm free from fear of death. You know, so often you hear people ask questions like, uh, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Anybody ever heard a question like that? Right? Here's a question that Paul wants us to consider. What would you do for God if you knew you couldn't die? If death no longer was the uh, intimidator that it was before Christ died. What I want you to know is that we don't have to fear death because he's died once and for all. He died and now we don't have to fear death. Last week we got a chance to commission a young man from our Woodside Global 100. Now some of you have heard about this Woodside Global 100, but it is a vision that God has given to me and our leadership team that over the next season that we would launch 100, 100 next-gen, globally-minded missionaries that will commit their lives to serving the world. And so we have already launched out a few, and there are about 24, 25 that are in the program right now. We're believing God that over the next season, he would give us many more. But to our surprise, and we as a church have been praying about all of the uh, humanitarian crises that's happening around the world, in particular with Afghanistan, to our surprise, we had a young man who had come to us who we knew was praying about being deployed, who says, God has spoken to me, and I, I know I'm called to serve in Afghanistan. But right now the doors are not open, but I want to serve the Afghanistan church. I just want to say this as a parenthetical statement, how beautiful it is just to be able to say Afghanistan church, because 20 years ago, you couldn't speak of the Afghanistan church. If you want to know, partly what's happened over the last 20 years is now there are estimated 30,000 believers in Afghanistan shining the light of the gospel brightly for Jesus in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And so we worked with him kind of behind the scenes. We got him connected to a group that is in a border country receiving refugees, and he is there now. He was deployed last Tuesday, and he is there now serving there. Can't say his name because of obvious reasons, but I want you to pray for him. But here's my question to you. What would cause a young man to say, I want to go and serve in a border country near Afghanistan? It is that he no longer fears death. What would you do if you no longer feared death? What would you do if you believed this? You know, I say this all the time. The most beautiful thing about the songs we sing in worship is not the melody. It's not the musicianship. It is the fact that it is true. Amen. The most beautiful thing about what Paul writes here is that it is true. We are free. And what Paul wants us to know is that Christ will never die again. In law, we'll know that there's this, um, this concept of double jeopardy, that there is no, no retrying of someone for a crime that they have been already found not guilty of. Christ will never have to pay for our sins again. The sin debt has been paid. How many thank God that he has paid our sin debt. It is canceled. What he did on the cross is sufficient. That's why 
for those of us who believe, there is now no condemnation, right? So what do you do when you sin? Well, when you sin, you come back to him in repentance. But understand this, his death was sufficient for all of your sins, past, present, and future. I like to say it this way. There is nothing you will do in this life that is greater than what he did on Calvary. Amen? Now, remember, we already studied last week, I believe it was, or maybe the week before, that that is not a license to sin. Paul anticipated this. He knew that the more you preach the free grace of God, the more the, the human mind will look for a loophole to keep on sinning. How many out there are professional loophole finders? How many, how many out there? How many are raising little loophole finders, right? I'm raising a couple little kids who uh, always find a loophole. Like a few weeks ago, I, I went into one of my kids' rooms, and I will not say their name for protecting the victims. So anyway, I walk into their room, and they want to do some activity, and I said, listen, your room is terrible. The only way you can do this activity is if you get those clothes off the floor. I come back about an hour and a half later, and surprise, surprise, isn't it amazing what motivation can come when you want to do something that you desire, right? All the clothes are off the floor. And so I'm like, man, great job. You get to do what you desire to do. You surprise me. This whole thing looks great. Later on that night, my wife calls me from the other room, and she is in another child's room, opens that child's closet, and the clothes from the first child's room is in the closet of the other child's room. And I'm about to go crazy, and I walk into the other child's room, and I said, what didn't you understand about what I said? I said, clean your room. They said, no, no, no. No, you didn't. What you said was get the clothes off the floor. And I did what you said. We are sinners. That's a sin nature. That's, that's a sin nature. So Paul knew. Paul knew that all of us were going to say, well, if grace abounds where sin abounds, and I can just keep on sinning. I don't have to worry about it. But Paul says, let it never be so. Absolutely not. Because Jesus died once and for all for sin, we now live for him. 1 Peter 3.18, if you could just keep your finger in Romans 6. Let me read 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sin. Man, his death was that powerful. Think about how many times you've sinned. Now multiply that over 7 billion people. Now multiply that over all of human history. What he did on that cross, his precious blood, how precious is that flow that makes us white as snow. Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We are alive because he will never have to die again because he's alive. Amen. So what does that mean? That means we should consider ourselves dead. Look at the next uh, section of Paul's writing, verse number 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Don't let sin reign anymore in your bodies. Again, Paul has gone from one political term to another. He has gone from dominion, saying that you are no longer a slave, to now reigning, who is your king. And he wants us to understand we are no longer up under the dictator of sin. Let's go back for just a moment to April 9, 2003. April 9, 2003, our country is engaged in a battle. It's called the Battle of Baghdad. We've been fighting to liberate the Iraqi people. And then on the news, there's this video footage that is looped over all the news stations. And the video footage is of this 39-foot statue of Saddam Hussein and the civilians of that nation had a rope around that statue and what were they doing? Anybody remember? Anybody remember these images? What were they doing? They were pulling it down. And what was it symbolic of? It was symbolic of the fact that he no longer reigns over us. We are now a free people. Well, on that cross, Christ crushed Satan's head. He no longer reigns over us, so we don't have to live as if sin does. Sin no longer is our master or our king. You have died to sin, and praise God, you are alive in Christ. Now go serve your new king. Go serve your new master. Now, what Paul wants us to understand is this, is that prior to Christ, we were so bound to sin that we couldn't resist it. You were a slave to sin, so you and I would consistently do what sin, our master, forced us to do. Paul is going to get deeply into this as we get to the next chapter, sneak preview. He's going to begin to cry out from this uh, position of looking back at his own state and say, the good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, that is what I keep on doing. Oh, what a wretched man I am. The picture of being addicted to anything is that you don't want to do it, but you keep doing it. And that describes us before Christ. But now in Christ, we who are addicted to sin are no longer addicted. He has been, he has, he has set us free. He has purified us. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's not that we can't go back to it. But if you go back to it, you're going back to it as a willing slave. You are going back to it willfully yourself. Because Christ has set us free. We have been free from the power and the reign of sin in our lives. And he says that we should no longer obey its passions. Think about the, uh, the things you used to uh, be passionate about. Think about the things that you used to uh, do that seemed like enjoyment. And now you look back on it. Anybody got those pictures, those images in your mind? Not just when you was wearing clothes that you never should have been wearing, but I'm just talking about stuff you know you shouldn't have done. Do, does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say there are things that I think of now and say, Chris, 
How did you ever think that was enjoyment? How did you ever think that was fun? How did you ever think that was worth pursuing? But now you're free. So you no longer have to surrender to those passions. In saying this, Paul is also doing something that I, I think uh, scientists should take note of. He's saying that human beings are not animals. We are not creatures who only have to uh, give way to our appetites. We can resist our appetites. We, we don't have to be driven simply by instinct. You know, you, you don't see animals sitting, sitting around contemplating their future destiny, right? You, you don't see them waxing poetic about the possibilities of navigating through a fallen world. There's something different about us. And science and its reductionist uh, tendencies want to uh, group all of us together and convince us, and this is what happens whenever uh, you... Uh, leave the biblical narrative and you go into a secular humanist way of thinking, uh, you begin to think that we are no different than the animals. And so we, like they, have to give in to our appetites and our instincts. We don't have to give in to our appetites and our instincts. We have died to that way of living. In Christ, we are dead to that way of living, and we are now alive. And as he's already said again and again and again, at the risk of redundancy, we have been risen to a new life in Christ. Amen? And all of this leads up to his final point in this section, and that is we are to present ourselves to God. Look at what he says here. This is amazing to me. Picking up in verse number 13, he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Now remember that he has already taught us why the law was given. The law was never given to redeem us. The law was given in order to expose to us and to the rest of the world our sinfulness, our dirtiness. The law, like a mirror, James describes it, only shows you the stain that is already on you so that you might know that you're stained. Well, when we look into the perfect mirror of the law of God, we know that our souls are stained with sin. And that's exactly what the law was supposed to do, is to bring us to a place of condemnation and conviction before a holy God so that we might know our neediness for salvation and a Messiah. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we would cry out, who can deliver me from this body of death, right? But he's saying that once you come to Christ, you no longer are under the law because now when you look in that mirror, you don't see yourself. You see him. He is perfect. No more stain, no more spot, no more blemish, no more wrinkle. I am cleansed. 
not because I ended up and paid my own debt, but because his blood paid the debt for my sin. He washed me clean, and now when the Father sees me, he sees him. Amen? Amen. So we are clean. But no, look at what he says, though. He says, don't then surrender your members. Now, in particular, he's speaking anatomically. He's talking about the members of your body. He's saying, don't surrender the members of your body to sin anymore. You're free. Don't go back to your captor and say, use me. But you're free. Now who do I surrender my members to? These hands are whose hands? God's hands. Right? This mind is whose mind? God's. These feet are whose feet? God's. These legs are whose legs? It's your breath in my lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only, right? Because you now are king, you now reign, your dominion is the dominion that has mastered me now. Now I'm free to surrender my members to him. But notice what he says in the text. He says, don't yield your members to him or present your members to him to sin as instruments, as instruments. This word in the Greek, haplon, means tools or weapons of war. When you read 1 John, it is not like reading Pauline writing. Paul uses before and after narrative. Paul, throughout, we see, you were dead, you now are alive. This is who you were before Christ, this is who you are after Christ. John, when you read 1 John, it is strange because, and somewhat disorienting, because Paul, I mean John, does not refer to before and after. He uses a different uh, illustration, and that is light and darkness. See, in John, he presents to you and me that we are in a cosmic war. The kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. And the question is, in John's writing, which side have, are you on? You know you have come out of darkness into light when you love the brethren. Right? He gives us all these ways for us to know which side are we on. Well, Paul, for a moment, picks up John's illustration of this cosmic war, and what he is saying is that you used to be on the other side. You used to use all of your members as tools or weapons of warfare against the kingdom of light. Follow me for a minute. Your time, your talent, your treasure, your creativity, your possessions, your wealth, all of them are either going to be used as a weapon for the kingdom of darkness to tear down the kingdom of light or as a weapon for the kingdom of light to destroy the kingdom of darkness. And what he is saying is that you shouldn't use your creativity for the world. You shouldn't use your artistry for non-God-glorifying purposes. 
You shouldn't use your money to finance the kingdom of darkness. Do you know how many Christians don't get this? They've been redeemed, but they're still taking their tools and weapons to the enemy. Do you know that the pornography industry couldn't exist if we took our weapons to the master? Do you know that human trafficking would stop if we took our tools and weapons to the king instead of to sin? Do you know what would happen if those who have been redeemed and blood-bought no longer use their creativity to produce cultural artifacts for non-God-glorifying purposes, but rather said, I'm going to use this to display the beauty of the cross. This is why, at the risk of making him feel a little bit uncomfortable, this is why I have a huge Scott Scheibel painting in my office, right? Love you, Scott. Appreciate you, brother. But if you walk into my office, you will see this huge painting. Looks a little bit like Ray Lewis, but it's not. Uh, but it's one of the faces of Detroit that Scott has painted, and I love it, right? I love it because here is this amazingly gifted artist that is using his weapons, his tool for the kingdom of light to bring redemption, to bring about hope, to point people to salvation. You know, I think about this. There are many people, right, that have this story. I think about one friend that I've developed over the years. Her name is Rosario Butterfield. Rosario Butterfield was a tenured professor at the University of Syracuse from the early 90s to the mid-2000s. She was a professor of uh, English in the Women's Studies Department, but she was also an outspoken uh, activist for um, the LGBTQ community. She was an out-front lesbian who used her voice to really champion that movement. And one day she decided she was going to write an open letter against um, against um, promise keepers. How many remember promise keepers? It's a gathering of men who were trying to make a promise to their families before God, to the society, to live as a man of honor. She called it a chauvinistic movement. Well, there was a pastor who lived in her town. Pastor Ken was his name, Presbyterian pastor at a Reformed church. And he used it as an occasion to write her a letter and say, can we host you for dinner, my wife and I? And they hosted her for dinner. And that started a friendship. And over a two-year period, they hosted her for dinner week after week, answering her questions, not arguing, not debating, showing her love. And after two years, Rosario Butterfield comes to Christ. Well, about five years after that, God used her to pen this wonderful book I would commend to you all. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, in which she declares that from here on out, I'm going to use all of my Ph.D. education, all of my giftedness, all of my voice to remind people that they are fearfully and wonderfully made by an awesome God 
who has written a narrative that should not be supplanted by earthly stories of sexuality, but should be beautifully submitted to as a God of redemption, as a story of healing that promises true intimacy as we surrender our hearts to him. And she has been used so mightily by God to bring people out of darkness and into salvation. Why? It's because she yielded her tools to the Lord. Paul wants us to know we are free from sin. We've died to it. Now we are alive in Christ. So what are you going to do with your tools? Every one of us, as I close this message, should be asking ourselves, how can I use my time for the purposes of the master? How can I use my talents to advance the kingdom and the cause of Christ? How can I use my treasure to finance the mission of salvation as his glory spreads across the earth? As we surrender our tools to the kingdom of light, a revival will start. And it will win a generation. And it will spread across cultures and countries and nations. When the church recognizes who we are in Christ, when we repent of our Stockholm Syndrome and we run to the Master and we yield all of our possessions to Him, all of our resources to Him, all of our members to Him, there will be an explosion of the gospel that will transform a generation. Everybody stand. Everybody stand. Father, as we prepare to close this moment in worship, we pray that today all of who we are will be used for your glory. We pray that today, Lord, you would use our marriages and our singleness, that you would use our creativity and our possessions, that you would use all of who we are, our thoughts and our deeds, for your glory until all of her until Christ return and it's in Jesus name we pray and all God's people say thank you for joining us as we study God's word together we would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today